Well, good afternoon. I keep saying good morning. That's a hard switch, but I'm uh, glad I finally arrived. Sorry for the five people I said good morning to before saying good afternoon. Um, this is a really significant moment for me. When I moved to Santa Rosa, I was not following Jesus. I was partying. I was living for my own life, building up my own name. Totally lost. I changed my major four times while I was at Santa Rosa Junior College. I had no idea who I was or where I was going. And when I found refuge, that all changed. I cannot begin to articulate the significance this church has in my life. God used refuge to not only show me who I was, but show me where I was going in life. And so to be here over a decade later, being able to teach God's word and to represent Foster the City, it's just really cool. And I'm just blown away by how God moves. And just want to thank John for the invitation to be here. It really means a lot to me. So thanks, John. So for those of you unaware of Foster the City, Foster the City is a coalition of churches committed to finding a home for every child in the foster care system. And um, just in our county alone, we have 520 kids who are in the foster care system. And in the Bay Area total, there's 6,000 children who are in foster care. Now, not all of these kids right now need a home, but several of them do. And often social workers work tirelessly to find homes for these kids because there's just no one available to open their doors. And in 2015, when Foster the City started, there was kind of like a high of that crisis. And ever since then, Foster the City has been resourcing churches to really do two things. Firstly, is to cast a theological vision for the importance of caring for kids in the foster care system. And secondly, it's mobilizing the church to wrap around those fostering parents with a team of four support friends who offer a meal or clean the house or do some yard work. They're just really there to support any way that they can. And over the last seven years, by God's grace, Foster the City has empowered the local church to raise up 267 foster families. And because of that, 480 children have been placed in Christian homes. Isn't that amazing? I think that's amazing. And that's not to pat Foster the City on the back. We didn't do that. The churches in the coalition did that. Pastors and leaders and advocates stepped forward to kind of raise the flag in the faith community to say, hey, these kids matter to God and they should matter to us. And so there's a little graph of refuge on the left and the fostering family in the middle and then the support friends who wrap around them. And those support friends are so crucial because Barna Research um, a couple years ago did this massive national survey to see how are foster parents doing? How are they getting along? And they found out that only 40% of foster parents continue after their first year. So it's like, ooh, foster parents aren't doing so hot. Like they're getting beat up. They're quitting before the first year. And so the support friend model is essential because the number one reason foster parents give for not being able to continue in foster care is lack of support. And within the context of the local church, that should no one should ever say that, lack of support. We are the family of God. And so these foster friends really do make a significant 
impact in these kids' lives and the families that they support. Now, all of that couldn't happen here at Refuge without your team of advocates. And so I just want to thank Melissa Nelson and Katie Flynn. If you guys are in here, you could stand up. And I just want to thank you guys for leading this ministry. Um, Without the advocates at the local church, there really is no ministry. And so we're just so thankful for you guys and and your hard work. Um, But um, at the same time, we want to celebrate what God has done. There's still work to be done. We had a Foster the City family that was just certified a, a few weeks ago. And they had put on their form that they were open to just one child. But the day after they were certified, they got a call from the county saying, hey, I know that you put on your form only one child, but there's a sibling set here that's been in government care for five months. We cannot find a home for them. It's a three-year-old boy and a seven-year-old girl. And the three-year-old boy, because he had never received the love and affection of parents, still could not walk. He was three years old and he was still crawling, not because of any medical issue, but just failure to thrive. And the seven-year-old girl in this family, the social worker reported, she doesn't play. She doesn't run around. She doesn't laugh. She's had to be the mother for this child her entire life. And so they were calling around looking for someone to say yes to these kids so this three-year-old boy could learn how to walk and this seven-year-old girl could learn how to be a kid. And that is the state of foster care across all of the Bay Area, that there is a lack of people stepping forward to open up their homes to these amazing kids who are made in God's image. But the question is how? How do we, as a church, not just refuge, but the capital C church, how do we create not a waiting list of children waiting for homes, but a waiting list of homes ready to say yes to children? How does the church step forward to care for these kids that God has called us to care for. And I, I would suggest to you this, this afternoon, I did it again, that it all starts with this fundamental question, whose neighbor am I? Whose neighbor am I? So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up. We're going to be in Luke chapter 10. Now, many of you know this story. And so here's my big kind of request for this afternoon is I don't want you to jump ahead to the end of the story. See, my problem is Jesus was a profound storyteller. I mean, captivated hundreds and thousands of listeners. I am not a profound storyteller. And so my fleeting attempt to tell this story is to give it to you in three chunks. And as much as you can, even if you know the rest of the story, just stay with me in the section of scripture that we're at And we'll kind of unpack it in these three different passages. So uh, the first portion, we go to that next slide. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your strength and with all of your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he 
desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for our time together as the family of God to read your word and to learn from it and to be encouraged by it and to be challenged by it. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would help us to understand this passage. Lord, the Bible works in our hearts and it changes us and it molds us. And when we encounter the word of God, we are different people because of the words that we read. And so God, I pray that that would be the case this afternoon, that these words, we would let them sink so deep into our soul and our heart that they change the way we actually treat people. That can only happen by the Spirit of God. And so Holy Spirit, we just invite you to pull up what needs to be pulled up and to plant what needs to be planted in the name of Jesus under the kindness of our Father, through the power of your Spirit. And we all said together, Amen. Amen. Now this is unfair. I just picked you up and I threw you in the middle of the Gospel of Luke. Everyone say, that's not fair. Okay, good. Thank you. You don't have any context. You're just like, okay, is this about foster care? Is this about Luke 10? So let me catch you up. In the Gospel of Luke, we are in the section of Scripture that scholars call the Gospel to the Outsider. Jesus is journeying towards Jerusalem where he will lay down his life for the salvation of many. And he's done the whole crowd thing, the miracle thing, the teaching thing, the feeding the 5,000 thing. And for the rest of the Gospel of Luke until Passion Week, Jesus is drawn near his disciples to teach them, get this, how they are to live in his absence. That's the context. Jesus is journeying with his disciples to Jerusalem and he's teaching them, he's showing them how they are to live in his absence. And story after story, teaching after teaching in this section is calling his disciples to demonstrate and to show compassion to outsiders, social outsiders, political outsiders, ethnic outsiders, just over and over again like a drum that's being beat. The, the theme verse of the Gospel of Luke undisputedly is that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. And Jesus is trying to get this in the hearts and the minds of his disciples before he goes to the cross. And as he's going along teaching his disciples how they're to live, out of nowhere, this lawyer appears. The text really says, and behold. So it's almost like he ambushed him or something. He comes out of nowhere. And the ESV calls him a lawyer, but he's not so much a courtroom prosecutor. The Net Bible actually is a little more helpful here. He's called an expert in religious law. This guy knows everything, every verse, every story, every interpretation. I mean, he, if you had a question about the Bible, you would turn to this guy. And the Bible very helpfully shows us his motives. He's not coming to learn from Jesus. He's coming to school Jesus. He's coming to show Jesus what's up. He thinks Jesus plays loose and fast with the law. He breaks the Sabbath. He doesn't follow the commandments. And so he's going to trick Jesus. And so he thinks for a while, how can I trick Jesus? And so he comes up with one of the most hotly debated questions among rabbinical scholars. And he just 
thinks to himself, you almost feel it like this will get him. Wait, wait till he answers this question wrong. And that question is, how do I receive eternal life? But what's so genius about Jesus is he doesn't play this guy's games. He actually turns the question back on him, and he ends up answering his own question that he came to trap Jesus with. This is one of those guys who likes to hear himself talk. If he has an opinion, he's going to share it with you. You guys know someone like that? Don't point to anyone in this room, but do you know someone like that? And so he knew that if he asked him, how do you read it? What is your interpretation, O great scholar? He would answer, and he answers. He says, you love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And one of the great surprises of this text is Jesus does not correct him. Jesus does not shoot him down or give him a different answer or criticize him. Jesus simply turns to him. And I think almost in compassion says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. This law expert was right. The sum of a life lived in God's presence is to love God who loved us first and to let that love fill us to the brim so that it spills out to others and they feel the very love of Christ that we have felt for ourselves. Now the law expert, he just can't handle the score being Jesus one, law expert zero. I mean, he is just like, dang it, I can't believe I answered my own question. Stupid, stupid, stupid. And so he's like, okay, let's try again. Round two. So he's like, uh, uh, well, who's my neighbor? This'll get him. This'll get him. But he's playing by different rules this time. In verse 25, it said he was coming to test Jesus. But in verse 21, it says he's desiring to justify himself. So we need to ask the question, how will an answer to this question of who is my neighbor, justify this religious law expert. And I think the message translation interpretation is really helpful here. Eugene Peterson interprets this by saying, looking for a loophole, he asked, just how do you define neighbor? See, he is trying to minimize the scope of who I love. He's trying to shrink the circle of who my neighbor is so he can say, oh, I love those people. I love people that are like me. I love people who are the same ethnicity. I love people who are the same religion. I love people who are the same socioeconomic status. And in fact, in Matthew 5, 43, Jesus says the same thing. He says, you have heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. There's the loophole to love. If you're my enemy, if I disagree with you, if we're a different ethnicity, if we're a different political party, if we live on the opposite sides of town, I don't have to love you because you're not my neighbor. You're my enemy. And so Jesus is going to do something profound by making sure that there's an accurate definition of who your neighbor is. Now, at first, it seems kind of difficult and odd. How do you love your neighbor as you love yourself? And I think love yourself today is used as kind of like a self-care, like, you know what? Take a day at the spa, you know? Take, take a personal day. Go, go ahead and get that extra large milkshake today and not the small one. It's just, we don't, how do you love yourself, you know? But the, most basically, to love yourself, first of all, is to secure food and water. 
To love yourself is to secure the basic things that you need to thrive and to live. It's also to protect yourself from harm. If there's danger coming, you, you move yourself out of harm's way. It's, it's to seek relational connection. It's to avoid loneliness and be meaningfully connected to someone. It's, it's to seek a life of joy and peace. That's what it is to love yourself. And Jesus is saying, the way you do those things for yourself, you're to do those for others. If people don't have food and water, get them food and water. If people are in danger, get them out of danger. If people are lonely and isolated, move towards them in relationship. The same things you secure for yourself, you should secure for others. And so this teacher of the law, looking to Jesus to let him off the hook, he's actually offering nothing in return. He's just saying, go and do this. And the way he responds to teach him this lesson is through a parable. So let's continue with the second part of our text. Jesus replied, remember this is to the question of who is my neighbor. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and he saw him, he passed by on the other side. This road that is being referenced here was a road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was about 17 miles of treacherous winding road. It's still a road today. You can go and walk it if you visit. And it was notorious for being dangerous because thieves would hide behind the boulders and in the caves and they could easily jump out and beat up their unsuspecting victims. And that is exactly what's happened to this Jewish traveler. He was attacked. He was robbed. He was stripped and he was left for dead. This man is in critical condition. If nobody stops to help this man, he will die. He will not live. And there's two significant glimmers of hope in this text. Two massive moments where you as the reader are going, it's going to be okay. Like someone's going to help this man. He's going to live. If you picture him on the side of the road gasping for air in critical condition, your heart just swells with empathy and you're praying, Lord, send someone to help this man. This man is not going to live if you do not intervene. And we are given good news. A priest is coming. Church, this is good news. This is a man of God. This is a man whose job it is to reconcile people to salvation through the Lord. And not, he's not just a fellow brother in the faith. He's a leader in the faith. And even better, he knows the scriptures. He knows Proverbs 21.13. Whoever shuts his ear to the cry of the poor will also cry and I will not hear him. He knows the words of Micah 6.8. He has told you, O oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And he absolutely knew the words of Leviticus 19, 18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, for I am the Lord. The priest approaches. He sees the bloodied man. Church, this is it. 
He's answered our prayer. He's going to be rescued. But it simply says he passed by him on the other side. He not only ignores him, he not only does nothing, he puts distance between this man's suffering and his life. He saw the man in need and he looked the other way and continued. And the question that the listener is left with is, how could he be so heartless? How could he be so selfish? How could he be so hypocritical? This is a man of God. This is a man who's given his life to connect and save people through his ministry. And he does nothing. And a Levite as well, someone who worked in the house of God, the modern equivalent for someone who's on staff at a church, sees a man in critical condition and he passes by. And the Bible doesn't tell us why neither of these religious men did nothing. Maybe it was because they didn't want to defile themselves. You know, cleaning yourself so you could enter into the temple was a lot of work and time. And maybe it just wasn't the bother. Or maybe they were in a hurry. Maybe the priest had sacrifices to offer and a teaching to give in the synagogue. Maybe he just couldn't bother with the man. Or maybe they were just scared. Maybe they thought, what if the robbers are still around here? What if I stop? I put myself in danger. Maybe I'll get beat up just like this man. The truth is we don't know why they didn't stop. The Bible doesn't tell us. We just know that they saw the man who was suffering and they passed by on the other side. And I wonder if Luke has intentionally left out the why so that you and I would examine the indifference in our own heart that we experience when people are suffering. I wonder if you and I have a little bit of the priest and the Levite inside of us. I remember a mission trip I got to go to, so South Africa. I was really excited. We were doing a lot of ministry with churches and then Throughout the week, we would go into these townships, as they were called. They were just, people were so poor. I mean, like on a global scale, like as, as deep poverty as you can be. Living in boxes and looking through trash to find food to feed their kids. And I had never encountered poverty on that scale. Thousands and thousands of people who don't know if they're going to have clean water or nutrients that day that they need to live. And I remember being there doing ministry with this church and feeling indignant, feeling so angry, thinking to myself, where is the church? We had a team of eight people or something like that. Like, where is the church? On Sunday, I was just with over a thousand people at this church. And here we are throughout the week and there's a team of eight. Like, where is the church? Why aren't they doing anything? People are suffering. People are dying. And I told God, God, if I lived here, it would be different. If I lived here, I would be out here every week serving these people who are hurting. Fast forward, we land back in Orange County and we're in the car and I'm driving back to my house from the airport and I, I look out the window and there had been a population of people experiencing homelessness that had uh, popped up in this dry riverbed. There are hundreds of tents, hundreds of people. 
stuck in addiction and pain and rejection. And as I looked out the window, I felt the Holy Spirit say to me, those people are right here and you're doing nothing. And just immediately the conviction of God came over me. I'm, church, I'm the priest. I'm the Levite. I see people suffering all the time. And indifference has so filled my heart that I look the other way. Or I roll up my window. Or I walk around them. And see, we serve a God who loves us. Notice that Jesus, both times, he's not going to condemn this man. He's going to invite this man to change. He's going to invite this man to live differently. That's how the Christian life works. We, we identify sin in our heart and God not as this judge who comes to us to say, you did a bad thing, you're bad. He points out our sin and he invites us to change. Because you and I, we get to show the world what God is like. That is crazy to me. That is crazy to me that I and we are the image of God to this world. That the kindness and the compassion that flowed through Christ during his earthly ministry should characterize the kindness and the compassion of his church. And, and this is our legacy. For over 2,000 years, the church has been doing this. After Christ's ascension in the first century church started to form, there was this terrible law called in, uh, infant exposure. And if you didn't like the child you had for whatever reason, maybe they had a disability or they weren't the preferred gender that you were going for, there was a, a garbage heap and you could leave your child at the garbage heap to die. And nobody thought anything of this in the Roman world. Historians tell us there were just dozens of children, hundreds of children, thousands of children abandoned. And it wasn't until the church started to form and realize how wrong this was, that a group of Christians would get together late at night in the center of Rome, and they'd huddle together and they'd pray in Jesus' name. And they begin to walk around the streets of Rome listening to the cries of children. And they go to these crying children who had been abandoned and they pick them up and they would raise them as their own sons and daughters. Church, that is our legacy. We, those are our brothers and sisters. God has always called the church to move towards suffering, to move in compassion, and to push back against indifference. And he invites us over and over to do this. There are half-dead people in the city of Santa Rosa. They are half-dead spiritually. They are half-dead emotionally. They are half-dead relationally. And you and I pass by them every day. And we are invited by God to see their suffering and move towards them. Teachers do this when they take extra time to notice a student who's hurting and invite them to their classroom at lunch to pray for them. Social workers do this when they devote their whole life to the restoration of the community. Therapists do this when they hold and they carry their clients' pain and suffering. Office workers do this when they notice a co-worker's off and they don't say nothing. They move towards them and they ask them if they can pray for them. Mentors do this who devote a whole week of their life to serving at Royal Family Kids Camp to see a child's life changed. Foster parents do this when they sacrificially open up their homes 
to heal broken and traumatized children and their families. And support friends do this when they wrap around a fostering family to love the kids and the family. There are a thousand ways for you in the situation you have right now, no matter where you live, how old you are, what your profession is, to move towards people who are hurting and suffering in the name of Jesus. I want to be so bold to take a moment, and I want you just to quietly ask the Holy Spirit to bring someone to mind, even right now. Maybe it's someone at work. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's a relative. Who's suffering? Who's half dead? Who is God inviting you, not out of guilt and condemnation, but out of joy in being used and partnering with God to move towards them and to show and express the kindness of God. See, the good news of this parable is like those I just listed, there was someone who didn't see and turn away, but who saw and drew near. Let's finish the rest of the parable. But a Samaritan as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And when he set him on his own animal, he brought him to an inn and he took care of him. And the next day he took out two months of rent and gave it to the innkeeper saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now speaking to the lawyer, Jesus asked, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. The actions of the priest and the Levite in this text are positioned against the actions of the Samaritan. The first two are a response of indifference. Men who had been desensitized by suffering to the point that they didn't even hesitate to step over those who were hurting. And a response of compassion And not just ordinary compassion. I mean radical, sacrificial, unexpected compassion. Samaritans and Jews, they were enemies. They hated each other. And Jesus telling a parable, get this, of a righteous, law-abiding Samaritan would have been wildly offensive. The Samaritan is the righteous one. The Samaritan is the one living out the scripture and the law. He stands righteous, the enemy of God. Tim Keller in his book, Generous Justice, says it this way, and we have the quote, if you want to show that behind me. By depicting a Samaritan helping a Jew, Jesus could not have found a more forceful way to say that anyone at all in need, regardless of race, politics, class, and religion, is your neighbor. And so this law expert was hoping that Jesus would limit the scope of his, who his neighbor was. Asked him, who is my neighbor? But Jesus actually 
flips the question around. And he shows us the right question is not who is my neighbor, but whose neighbor am I? Whose neighbor am I? Who needs my help? Who is in critical condition, half dead, whether that's spiritual or relational or physical? And, and Jesus puts this lawyer in the place of the man who is suffering, and he's basically asking this man, how would you want other people to respond to you if you were in this place of weakness? Now, as I read this parable, I, I can't help but notice a few parallels between foster care and Jesus' teaching here. Children and youth in foster care are much like this half-dead man on the side of the road. They are vulnerable and in need of compassion and love, in need of someone to stop and see them instead of passing by on the other side. And the Samaritan's actions give us a picture of what it's like to show love, to show compassion, to care for people who are hurting. And, and the first way I want to point this out is that first, unlike the priest and the Levite, he saw the man and he had compassion. I, I think the greatest enemy of showing compassion is making a quick judgment. In my own life, this has certainly been the case. That when we see people who are hurting or suffering, our mind is actually wired to fill in the story of how they got there. Whether it's positive or negative, right or wrong, your mind will flush out the narrative of how someone got into the place that they are suffering. Maybe it comes out like this. Well, I bet they made a series of bad decisions to end up there. Or I bet they didn't work hard enough. Or watch out, that person might be dangerous. Or the real problem is that they're a drug addict. Or I would be wasting my time if I tried to help them. The first and the greatest obstacle, church, to showing compassion is holding your judgments. It's pausing and it's listening. It's moving towards people who are suffering and asking them, how did you end up here? What's going on in your life? Where has God been present or where has God not been present? It's not making these assumptions, and, and maybe they're, they're coming from a place of experience in the past, but the person in front of you is a different person, and they got there for a different reason. I remember this mom who was in foster care that my wife and I got the privilege to walk alongside for several years, and her own kids were removed from her and placed into the foster care system, and this 17-year-old girl as we got to know her, we just heard the story of how she grew up. And it was heartbreaking. The type of abuse and the type of rejection and the type of loneliness that she felt growing up, that she received from her mom, she's now passing down to her own daughter. And you just grow in empathy. Somebody that we would maybe be quick to judge, a teenage mom, daughter in the foster care system, what's wrong with her? When you hold that judgment and you start asking questions and you start learning, you realize like this, this girl is the one who needs compassion shown to her. She never received the love of God that God had intended. And your heart just begins to swell with empathy when you start to listen to people and hear their stories. And this is certainly the case for my wife and I in our journey. We've 
been foster parents for the last five years, and we've gotten to know nine different kids and their stories if they've come in and out of our home. And as we've helped families get back together through what, what is called reunification, and we've heard these stories, man, our heart just over and over has broken, not just for the child, but for the whole family structure. And the Bible tells us that we have been given the ministry of reconciliation. Like, that's our jam. If we would have a jam, our jam would be reconciliation. That's pretty cool. Like, we should be experts in helping people reconcile who have broken apart. Because Christ has certainly done that for us. And we've seen that over and over. And as you listen and as you grow in empathy, your judgments, they just start to fade away. And slowly you begin to see the people in front of you for who they really are. Secondly, this man gave of his own resources to help. He generously poured out his own oil he would have used for cooking and his own wine that he would have used for hydration to help this man. And that word pouring out in the Greek is lavishly, like he soaked this man in what he had. And not only that, but he put the man on his own donkey and he transported him to an inn and he paid two months rent out of his pocket and he said, anything else he needs, I will cover. And so the question there for us is, man, what resource has God given you that you can use to show compassion? Do you have time to spare? Well, you can become a volunteer or a mentor with Royal Family Kids. Do you have love to spare? You can become a support friend and wrap a fostering family. Do you have the gift of generosity? You can become a financial partner and give so we can find more homes for kids in the Bay Area. Or do you have the gift of hospitality? You yourself can pray about opening up your home to one of these amazing kids who right now is waiting for a family to say yes to their story. See, the, the Samaritan, he generously and quickly looked at the resources he had and he gave them for this man who was suffering. Thirdly, what I notice about this man's compassion is that he bound up his wounds. He bound up his wounds. There, there was bleeding and, and the injuries that he sustained were critical and so he immediately went to work to start to heal and to, to bind up this man's Wounds and children and youth in foster care, they have been wounded greatly. And sometimes that's physical wounds, but always that's the wounds of their trauma and just the loss that they've gone through, being removed from their homes. And when children are growing up, they're always asking two questions over and over and over again Am I safe and am I loved? Am I safe and am I loved? And that is the beauty of having a church that's engaged in foster care, not just a family, because every child from the foster care system that walks on this property, they should have no doubt that they are wanted and they are loved. I mean, you guys should be swarming that child with love and smiles and just a warm welcome. You get to play a role in that. Each child and youth in the foster care system who enters into that this church, you get to play a part in rewriting the story that they've heard. That, that they are wanted and they're valuable and God wants them here. I'm so thankful for my own church. Our foster daughter who just reunited two weeks ago, we would pull up to church and we'd 
push the double stroller into the lobby, and people would be fighting, like elbowing each other, no joke, to see who could hold my daughter first or who could welcome her or greet her or give her a toy, this beautiful one-year-old girl. And as a foster dad, I, I just can't tell you how much that meant to me because I so desperately, one of my prayers for this little girl as she moves on is that she would know that the church is a safe place to go. And that if she comes to the church, she will be loved and she will be seen and she will be cared for. And that is our privilege as the family of God to do that for these amazing children and youth. And lastly, what I see about this man's compassion as we come to a close is that he was present with the man who was suffering. He not only spent the night in the inn caring for this man's wounds and binding him up, but he returned. He came back. Two months later, he he came back and he made sure that he was fully healed and that he was taken care for. He was present with him in his suffering. And church, sometimes that's the best gift we can give people is just to be with them is to not rush things, to sit with them and ask good questions and pray for them. And not before we get to the stuff to fix stuff, that, that's absolutely helpful, but just to be with people who are suffering and to know that they have someone who cares for them and, and loves them. And throughout this parable, Jesus has shown us that the default of our hearts is to see and to pass by on the other side. But there is a third way The gospel teaches us how to see and have compassion, how to see and draw near, how to see and pour out our resources. And at the end of the day, this passage ultimately isn't even about you. It's not even about me. It's about the ultimate good Samaritan, Jesus. This is a picture of how Christ has loved us. The Bible tells us that you and I, we were enemies of God, just like the Jews And the Samaritans, and while we were enemies of God, Christ drew near us and he poured himself out for us and he gave himself up on the cross so we could be healed. So we could come into the inn of the family of God and the oil and the wine of the Spirit could begin to heal our wounds as we live in community and we work together to find out what it means to serve God and live God together. And guess what? Just like the Good Samaritan, Jesus will surely return. He will come back for that church. He will come back for those that he has healed and restored and made whole. And so as we close, let us set our gaze and our attention to Jesus. He's the ultimate good Samaritan. He is the one that moves towards us in love and binds up our wounds. And maybe you're feeling those wounds today. Maybe you're feeling vulnerable or raw. Jesus is here to meet with you and and to heal you. Maybe you're, you're feeling in need of strength. Like you're just in a place of weakness in your marriage or in your parenting or in the things God's called you to do, Christ is here to give you strength. He is the ultimate good Samaritan that moves towards us in love. As I invite the band up, I think, is that the thing next? Okay. Um, There is a table out in the lobby, a Foster the City table. And if you are at all interested in getting involved to hear more about foster care 
or becoming a support friend or maybe volunteering, I would love if you guys could fill out a next step card. And we have an interest meeting coming up in Santa Rosa in just a few weeks. And if you fill out the interest card, you'll hear all about it. And that is a great place to learn how you can get involved in the foster care system. I promise we will not send you home with a child yet, okay? So this is a a free space to explore foster care. We don't actually have authority to place kids, so you're totally safe with us. But I would just invite you, if God has been stirring in your heart a passion and a love for kids in foster care, and even if you don't know what that means yet, please go fill out a next step card and and let God lead you on that journey. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for our time together. Thank you for this text that both encourages us, that demonstrates the radical love that Christ has had for us, but also challenges us. And God, I, I pray for those of us who felt convicted by the text, Lord. Lord, would you forgive us for the indifference that's in our heart? God, would you forgive us for the moments that a friend or a stranger has been suffering and we, for busyness or for worldly concerns, have just passed by on the other side? Christ, your forgiveness is here and it's ready to forgive and to make whole and we we receive that, God. Lord, those of us who have been filled with your love, Lord, teach us how to pour that out for others. Teach us how to love because you have loved us. And God, those of us who are gonna move towards children and youth and foster, give us courage and bravery and vision to see too that the convictions that you're placing in our heart, we make them real in our lives. We pray all this in Jesus' mighty name, amen.